0: This is Andrew Womack, and this is our sixth and final tape in a series entitled, You've Already Got It. And of course, this being the final tape, uh, the previous things that have been said, I think are essential, and so I'd encourage you, if it's been a while since you heard those, to review them, or if you somehow or another get this tape and haven't heard it in its context, I encourage you to please get the entire series entitled, You've Already Got It. Real briefly, let me just mention a couple of things. In Ephesians chapter 1, the very first teaching was about how that everything has already been provided. We're already blessed with all spiritual blessings. We already have the same power on the inside of us that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So we don't need more from God. What we need to do is learn how to use and receive what we've already got. It's not God who needs to transmit, it's us that needs to receive. God has already given. Then in our second tape, we used Ephesians 2, verse 8, about grace and faith, that faith only appropriates what God has already provided by grace. I tell you, that has changed my life, that revelation, in many, many other people's lives. That's a very important truth. The third tape was about the spiritual realm, that everything that God has provided is in the spirit, in our spirit, in the spiritual realm. And to get it into a physical manifestation where you can see it, feel it, benefit from it, it takes faith. Faith is what reaches over into the spiritual world and brings things into the physical world. And so I think that's a very important concept because when you start talking about how god has already done everything many people try and verify whether that's true or not by just looking in the physical realm and if all you think that exists is what you can see taste hear smell and feel then you will never believe this that god has already done everything but if you can acknowledge that there is a spiritual world that you can't see or perceive with your peanut brain then you can acknowledge that there are things that you can't see, and faith will bring them into physical manifestation. We also talked about that in Daniel chapter nine and chapter ten that one of the ways that Satan hindered Daniel was uh or excuse me that it was Satan that hindered Daniel and not God. God answered Daniel's prayers instantly, but Satan is the one that made the the uh, time difference in the prayer in the ninth chapter where Daniel received in about three minutes, and in the tenth chapter where it took three weeks. So as a follow-up to that, our fourth tape in the series was talking about spiritual warfare. How do you deal with the devil? And I really said some things that I think are very important, very beneficial, but they are very controversial. And possibly I'll probably get more flack over that teaching on spiritual warfare or what I've entitled the triumphant procession. Talking about how that Satan is a factor, but the only way he fights us is through deception. It is not because he has physical power, spiritual power, or authority. it's just deception, and it's when we lie when we believe his lies that Satan is able to do things in our life. The last teaching that I did, tape number five in this set, was about the faith of God, and how that when you got born again, you already have all of the faith that you need. You have the supernatural faith of the Son of God, and it didn't come into you just for a moment and then leave, but the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance, Romans 11:29. That means that whatever God gave you, you still have. You may not have it functioning. You may not have any manifestation evidence of it in your life, but it is there in the spiritual realm. Just acknowledging that you have the faith of God on the inside of you will make a huge difference. Now, you have to develop that. You have to learn how to release it. And another thing that we talked about on that tape is that there are laws that govern how God's kind of faith operates. And you can't operate God's faith according to the way you want to do it. You've got to discover what those laws are. Just like in the natural realm, electricity is governed by laws. And if you want to use electricity, you've got to discover what those laws are and then flow uh in accordance with that people could have used electricity thousands of years ago if they would have known what we know it was knowledge that was the problem and so we talked about all of that how that you do have the supernatural faith of god i'm going to end this teaching by talking about that the problem is our unbelief and this is a follow-up a very close teaching to what i did on the last tape that you already have the faith of the Son of God. It's actually incorrect to ask God to increase your faith. The disciples did that in Luke chapter 17, and he basically told them you don't need an increased faith. You need to use what you've got. And so you've got to understand this principle, that you already have the faith of God. But it's not going to automatically produce victory in your life unless you learn how to use that faith. And here is another thing. This is what we'll be talking about today, is you have to get rid of unbelief that counterbalances your faith. Let me teach this from Matthew chapter 17. This is right after Jesus and three of his disciples had been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was glorified. They saw Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus and they came down from the mountain and when they came down from the mountain uh, let's just read this in Matthew chapter 17 verse 14 and when they were come down to the multitude there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying Lord have mercy on my son for he is lunatic and sore vexed for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and often into the water and I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Now we're going to go on through some more scriptures, but let me just pause here for a moment and say this, that the story is that the man brought his son to Jesus, who the Bible here says was lunatic, and uh, as you read it here and also in Mark chapter 9, it's evident that he had some type of seizures. I think that most people that I've read about would think that this is equivalent to what we would call epilepsy today. And he brought this boy who had these demon spirits in him and they, the disciples of Jesus couldn't cast him out. And when Jesus found out about this, notice his reaction. He said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me now this is important because today we don't see very many people in the body of Christ that are operating in the supernatural power of God we don't see very many demons cast out don't see that many people healed don't see all of these kind of things the church as a whole is powerless to cast out demons and to cure sicknesses and to do things and yet they've uh, basically the the much of the body of Christ has excuse this action saying well we're just people you know and we pray and we ask god to do it but if we don't see something happen well it's god is sovereign it's god's will or or you know these things passed away with the apostles and we've come up with all of these different doctrines to justify powerlessness and ineffectiveness jesus didn't respond that way if jesus would have been one of the modern day Uh, many of the modern-day ministers and one of the touchy-feely feel-good type things, he would have said, guys, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have been up on the mountain being transfigured and talking to my Father. I left you alone. I, I left you to handle problems that are beyond your ability. After all, you're only human. Forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm here now. Bring him to me. You know, Jesus didn't do any of these things. Instead, he actually got mad. That doesn't express here how mad he got, but you can certainly see that he's displeased. He said, oh, faithless and perverse generation. In other words, he says, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. He says, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to be here to do these things? Jesus was trying to teach his disciples. He had already given them authority to cast out devils and to heal people, and they were supposed to be able to handle this. Jesus, in effect, was saying, guys, this is not acceptable. You are faithless. You are perverse. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And I'm saying this in love, but I hope that it registers that it makes the impact that it should, that our Christianity today is faithless and perverse. The church is supposed to have the answers for the world, and we do but we aren't using what we've got. This is the whole point I'm making in this entire series that I've done, is that God has already given us everything, but we aren't using it. We aren't effective. And even most of the Christians have just lowered the standard. They say that miracles, uh, miraculous, all of these kind of things passed away with the first century church, and a large segment of the body of Christ doesn't even expect or look for miracles. But even those who do look for miracles basically just approach it like, oh, God, we ask you to do it. And they aren't taking that God has already done it and taking their authority and commanding it and making it come to pass. So I tell you, we are seeing very little results in this area. And Jesus, here, his response to these disciples, I believe, is the same way that he feels about things today, that this is wrong. This is not the way he intended it to be. People ought to be able to come to us and get healed get delivered, get blessed financially, emotionally. They ought to have the answer in the church, and we shouldn't have to send them to other places. I tell you, the body of Christ has really failed in this area. In verse 18, it says, And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? Now, this is a very valid question, and... I want to give a little background on this to make you understand and relate to this even more. These disciples in the 10th chapter of the book of Matthew, Jesus had already sent them out and he gave them power over the devil. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, it says, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of of sickness and all manner of disease in other words everything was covered by that and so jesus had already sent them out and in the 10th chapter we find that when they came back that they were rejoicing and they were beginning to say lord even the devils are subject unto us in your name And he had to tell them, you know, don't rejoice in the fact that the devils are subject unto you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There were no questions in the 10th chapter of Matthew, which implies that they went out, took this power that God had given them, and saw results. Now, I think it's important to recognize that. So when you come to Matthew 17, these are not people who had never flowed in the miraculous who had never seen people healed who had never seen demons cast out these are people that who, who had done that and had been successful and their lack of asking a question means that apparently they had had a hundred percent success rate prior to this so now this makes their question even more significant see if these disciples would have been like some people today some of our evangelicals who believe that miracles passed away in the, you know, know, last month or something, and that God doesn't do miracles, that dispensation is over. If these disciples would have been believing like that and saying, well, you know, there aren't such a thing as demons. Demons can't be cast out. Well, then they wouldn't have asked this question. The very fact that they were asking this question implies that they did believe. They did have faith that it was God's will, that he had given them power, they exercised it, they acted on it, they spoke, and yet they didn't see the desired results. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone? I guarantee you, if you would just allow yourself, probably every person listening to this tape has had something happen where you really believed that God was going to heal, deliver, prosper, whatever, and yet you didn't see the right results. Now, those who don't believe... And just, you know, pray and say, God, if it be your will. Well, then they aren't shocked and surprised. These people, these disciples were shocked and hurt. And they asked this question because they did believe. Now, it's important that you understand that. They had exercised that faith. They had seen it work in the past. And yet this time they didn't get the desired results. So in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, here is Jesus' answer to them about why they couldn't cast this demon out. Before I read that, let me just ask you, why do you think that certain demons don't come out? Why do you think that certain people aren't healed? Why do you think that certain times you don't see your financial breakthrough? Why do you think that things happen that people pray for, they they don't come to pass? Well, there's multiple answers. One of the dominant answers is people think, well, uh, it must not have been God's will. And I'm just here to categorically deny that. God wants you to prosper in every area. It is not God's will for you to be sick. It's not God's will for you not to have your needs met. It's not God's will for you to be oppressed. It's not God's will for you to be invalid, defeated, discouraged. God isn't teaching you something. He's not punishing you. That is not true. There's a large segment of the body of Christ that they just lump every unanswered prayer into this thing of, well, God is sovereign. And I had not got time to go through all of that. I believe that God is almighty. I believe that he can do anything he wants to do, but I believe he has done what he wants to do. And he has given a lot of leeway to us, a lot of authority to us. And there are things happening today, not because it's God's will, but because we are just reaping what we've sown. For instance, I could refer to these terrorist attacks that happened in 2001, September the 11th. And many people relegated that to God's judgment. I don't believe that was God's judgment on America. I believe America is worthy to be judged, but God isn't releasing his judgment. And I don't believe that it was in God's sovereignty that he had to allow it. I believe that God set up laws that we reap what we sow. America has been systematically trying to become a secular nation instead of a christian nation we've kicked god out of our schools out of our public life it's politically incorrect we have ignored god we're doing our own thing and because of it you know what when the enemy came against us and the enemy will come against even godly people you don't have to be doing something wrong to have an attack from the devil but when the enemy came against us we were defenseless because we had denied god the right to move in our society freely I believe that if this was a more godly nation, I believe that our defense would have been even greater. But you can't say that just godly people will never have a problem. There are demonic people in this world who will come against you and fight. David had people attack him, and he was seeking God and serving God. He won, but he was attacked. He had to fight. And so the point that I'm making is that I think that this teaching on the sovereignty of God today is totally misrepresented. It's totally misapplied. I have an individual teaching entitled The Sovereignty of God that will deal with that in more detail. I'm not going to take time to do it here. But when we're asking this question about why don't things work, well, some people just think that whatever will be will be, and God is sovereign and God controls everything, and so they do that. I don't think that that's accurate. Then there's other people, probably one of the dominant responses among charismatic faith type of people, when you say, why did a person pray for healing and they died? Well, probably one of the dominant answers that faith people would give is just to say, well, they didn't have any faith. They didn't have enough faith. I dealt with that on our last tape that we already have the faith of God, but it would basically come back to some way or another, your faith is ineffective. Your faith wasn't sufficient. You didn't have enough faith. And let me say this, that that is one option. Now, that's not the only option. And I want to make this very clear because I think that when it is presented as the only reason that people don't see their answers to prayers because you just don't have enough faith or your faith didn't work. I think that's too simplistic of an answer and what it does, it condemns a lot of people and it brings them to a place that they reject faith teaching because they feel like it's condemning and it's putting all of the responsibility. It's no grace involved in it. Again, I'd refer you to that tape I did on grace and faith in this album. It's imperative that you understand the relationship there. I think that it one reason people don't see answers to their prayers manifest is because they don't believe. Now, that is one reason. And anybody who says, no, that's not a reason. Faith has zero to do with it. I believe that that is totally incorrect. I've not heard very many people say that because it's so obvious. But I have heard a few people say that like when it comes to ministering healing to another person, it has nothing to do with their faith. If you just believe, then it'll work. I don't believe that that's true at all. Jesus quickened people's faith. Jesus told people in the fifth chapter of the book of John, go and sin no more, lest the worst thing will come upon you, implying that they have a part to contribute in this thing. Uh, I've got tapes on all of these things. Uh, I do believe that there is some degree of faith uh, necessary on the part of the people who are receiving. And sometimes you'll hear people say that, no, that's not true, and I I don't think that's accurate. I do think it takes some faith, but I will say this, that this has been an excuse too often to just say that, well, it's because you don't believe. That's the reason you haven't received. That's, That's condemning, and that is too simplistic, and much of the time that's just nothing but an excuse so that we don't have to face the uh reality that you know what there's a problem with our faith and with our receiving from god and so you know there's no way that on a general teaching i can draw that line and make a fine clear distinction about exactly where the problem is but i'm just saying that yes faith or a lack of faith is one reason one big reason that a lot of people don't receive from god if you don't believe you won't receive and i do believe that's true But it is not as simple as you just believe and receive or you doubt and do without. That's not all that there is to it. You can believe and yet still not receive. And that's the point I'm trying to make here. These disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast him out? They did believe or they wouldn't have been asking this question. They had believed and seen positive results in the past. And yet they still didn't see the right results. There was faith present and yet they still didn't see the right results. So look at what Jesus' answer to them was in Matthew 17, 20. He said unto them, Because of your unbelief. Now many people are thinking, Well, that's what we were just talking about. It's because they didn't believe God. Here's a mistake that a lot of people make. They think that if you say a person has unbelief, that that automatically means they don't have faith. And conversely, if you have faith, you automatically don't have unbelief. It is a mistaken um, notion that faith and unbelief are mutually exclusive. That if you have one, you don't have the other. That is not true. And that we're going to talk about that. So when Jesus said it's because of your unbelief, he was not saying it's because your faith wasn't present. He didn't mention that. There is faith. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. He, he goes to talking about that you don't need a great faith. You don't need a big faith. See, this relates perfectly to what I was teaching in Luke 17:5, where the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. And he says, you don't need more faith. Just use what you've got. If your faith is the size of a mustard seed, it's enough to cause this tree to be planted in the in the sea. And nothing is impossible unto you. Mark chapter 11, I've already used that passage of scripture. But in Mark 11:23, he says, For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. Now notice that this is the same terminology, the same terminology that Paul, that Jesus is using here in Matthew 17 when he says, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Mark chapter 11, verse 23, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea. And here he adds this, and shall not doubt in his heart. Now again, most people believe that if you have faith that you automatically don't have unbelief. That is not accurate. Jesus here said you have to say to the mountain, and of course it's implied that you're saying in faith, you're believing that it's going to work, and then not doubt in your heart. You know, if you'll remember, I think it was in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus was... uh, Going to raise Jairus's daughter from the dead, and he was interrupted by the woman who had the issue of blood, and she came and touched his garment. And anyway, because of the time that he spent with this woman uh, ministering unto her, uh, the Jairus's daughter died, and a messenger came and said, uh, "Don't trouble the master any longer; your daughter is dead." And in Mark chapter 5, verse 36, it says, "As soon as Jesus heard the word," It was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, be not afraid, only believe. Only believe. Why would he tell him to only believe? Because you can believe and disbelieve at the same time. And um, in this same example where Jesus was casting the demon out of this lunatic boy, recorded in Mark chapter 9, Jesus told the father of the child, he says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And then the father of the child cried out in verse twenty four, Mark nine twenty four, and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. See here's three examples that talk about believing and yet having unbelief at the same time. Now here is a radical concept. Most people think that you either believe or you don't believe. But I believe, according to these scriptures, that you can believe and have a true faith that under normal circumstances would bring the deliverance that you desire, and yet it not produce the right results, not because you don't have faith, but because your faith is coupled with unbelief. They are opposing forces. And so instead of just trying to get faith and get faith and get faith, what you need to do is deal with the unbelief that counteracts your faith. That counterbalances your faith. Imagine this: if if there was a weight sitting right in front of me, and if you hooked a horse up to that weight so that you exerted enough power that you could drag that weight, you could move it. Well, that that would be power. That would be a that would be a force that moved that weight. But if you hooked a horse up to the other side of that weight and exerted equal power at the same time. Those two horses could be pulling in opposite directions and there could be tremendous force being released and yet the net effect on the weight be zero because you have opposing forces. Well, see, that's the way that it is with faith and unbelief. Faith, even a little mustard seed amount of faith, just a tiny bit of faith is more than enough to cast out a demon, like in this case of this lunatic boy. It's more than enough to see a healing. It's more than enough to accomplish whatever you've got. You don't need more faith. Your faith is sufficient. But the problem is... That even those who have faith and believe that God does want us to live a victorious life and are praying and are trying to believe in that direction have unbelief that counters that faith. And so the net effect is zero. What I'm trying to say here is I've seen people who didn't believe that it was God's will for them to be well and they fought against it. I came to pray for them and they didn't believe it and so they died. Well, it's obvious why they died. They didn't believe for it. There was zero faith presence. So that's relatively easy to deal with. But you know what? I've seen other people who did believe that it was God's will and who were praying and trying to trust God for their healing had even seen other people healed or maybe had been healed in the past themselves and they still died. Now, see, that's harder to deal with. And one of the reasons that people struggle is because they think, I know there was faith present. You know, I'm not going to go into great detail. I've already mentioned some of these things, but I've seen tragedy in my life. And I've been around people who I know loved God. I mean, loved God with all of their heart. And there was faith present. They faced death and instead of fear, there was joy, there was anticipation, expectancy that they were going to see physical healing manifest, and yet I've seen those people die. And see, when you know that, when you can perceive, you recognize that faith is present, even though it's an intangible, a person who is seeking God can tell when there is faith present. And when you know that there is faith present, and you still see a different results than what the Word of God promises, then this causes confusion in a lot of people. This is exactly what the disciples were asking right here. And many people just think, well, if if it didn't work, then that means they didn't believe. I don't think that that's accurate. Now, that's one option, but it is also possible that a person could really believe and have Bible-type faith where they are speaking forth their faith they are speaking to their mountain. They are acting in agreement. They're doing everything that they know to do. Faith is present, but they have this unbelief. And its unbelief is subtle. A lot of people don't recognize that. They just look, and if they perceive faith in a person, then they think automatically it's going to work. Well, not necessarily. Jesus here told the disciples that it's not the fact that you didn't have faith. He says it's the fact that you had unbelief. And then to reinforce that, he says, for if if your faith is only the size of a mustard seed, it's enough to cast a mountain into the ocean. In other words, he was dispelling this concept of big faith and little faith. It is true that some people use great amounts of faith and other people use little faith. But it is also true that every born-again believer has the faith of the Son of God. And if a Christian is using that God-given supernatural faith, it's enough to accomplish whatever you need if there is no unbelief to counteract it. Let me just use some examples here. One of the times that I first learned what I'm talking about here, I think I've already used this example in this series. I forget exactly what I've said. But anyway, it's a great example. It'll apply anyway. But I had just seen a person raised from the dead, and it was so exciting. And man, I knew that my faith was working and that things were going good. It hadn't been very long, and I went to Omaha, Nebraska. I saw a man in a wheelchair there, and this man was uh, paralyzed in this wheelchair, and I had... I, I reasoned that if you could see a person raised from the dead, if your faith had developed, if it was functional to the point that you could see a person raised from the dead, that you could certainly see a person come out of a wheelchair. So I went over, grabbed this man by the hand, and lifted him out of that wheelchair, and he f- he fell right over on his face. And when that happened, uh, man, my faith just seemed to evaporate. And all of the people that were in the crowd, you could hear moans and groans and gasp. And anyway, I grabbed this guy, wrestled him back into the wheelchair, said depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. But I didn't give him what he needed. I, I mean, I didn't say those exact words, but that's scripturally what I did. I, I just tried to encourage him to still believe God, but I couldn't help him. And I went to the hotel that night, and I was really perplexed because I said, God, I know that I had faith. There's no way that you'd go grab a person out of a wheelchair if you didn't have faith. How many of you have ever grabbed a person and yanked them out of a wheelchair and seen them fall on their face? Well, there may be a couple of people, but most of you haven't. You know why? Because you just didn't believe that they would be healed if you did that. The reason I did is because I did believe he'd be healed. I did believe he would walk. There was faith present. And yet, I didn't see the desired result. And because of that, it caused a lot of confusion. And I sought the Lord for an answer on this for two or three years. And it came gradually, but there was a just a major breakthrough when I was reading a Smith Wigglesworth's book. Actually, it was a book written about him by his son-in-law. And he was recounting some of his miracles for those of you who don't know, Smith Wigglesworth uh, died, I believe, in 1949, and he lived in England. He traveled here in the United States. He was uh, had a miracle ministry and saw just great things happen. And one of the things that he used to do and it was reported in this book was that he would say the very first person to get up here on the stage will be healed of whatever's wrong with you, and he'd pray for him, see him healed. And then he would use that as an attention grabber to get everybody's faith built up. Then he would teach them how to do this. And then he would pray for the sick after his message. But that's the way he would start his meetings and just say, the first person up here will be healed of whatever you've got. And so he did that one time. And there was a woman there that had a cancer in her stomach, abdomen. And she looked like she was about nine months pregnant, but she was 60 or 70 years old. She was so weak, so frail that she couldn't even sit up on her own. So she had a woman on each side of her that was actually holding her up. And they brought her to this meeting to be healed. And they knew that Smith Wigglesworth was going to say, the first person up here will be healed. So as soon as he said that, they were right up there with this woman. She was the first one on the stage. And so Smith Wigglesworth looked at her, saw this huge tumor on her belly, and he told the women that were holding her, he says, let her go. And they said, we can't let her go. She doesn't have strength. And he raised his voice and said, let her go. So they let her go and she fell forward on that tumor. Let out a groan of pain. The people in the audience, there were gasp of unbelief and things. The exact same thing that happened when I pulled this man out of the chair and he fell on his face. It was the same type of response. But how did Smith Wigglesworth respond to it? Well, he said, pick her up. How did I respond to it? I picked the man up and I began to feel pity and sympathy and embarrassment for myself and for him. And I began to respond in a a manner of unbelief. Smith Willsworth just stood his ground. He said, pick her up. So those two women picked her up. And then he said, let her go. And they said, we can't let her go. And he said, let her go. And anyway, those women let her go. And she fell on her face again, landed on that tumor. And all the crowd moaned and groaned again. So Smith Wigglesworth said, pick her up. So they picked her up. And then she was standing in front of him and he says, let her go. And those two women said, we will not let her go. And he says, you let her go. And a man in the audience stood up and he said, you beast, leave that poor woman alone. And Smith yelled at him and says, you mind your business. I know my business. And then he says, let her go. And these two women let that woman go, and that tumor just fell out of her dress on the stage, and she walked off totally healed. Now, my point for making that comparison is that, you know what? When Smith spoke to that woman the first time, she didn't see the desired results. But what was the difference here? And I pray that you understand this. The difference was not my faith compared to Smith's faith. I had faith. I had enough faith to grab a man by the hand and lift him out of a wheelchair. I had faith. The difference was that I also had unbelief. I was too susceptible to what people thought, which is unbelief. And here is a powerful passage of Scripture. John chapter 5, verse 44. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only. In other words, if you are worried about what people think, if you're worried about looking good in the sight of people, it's going to hinder your faith, or in the context of what we're talking about, it's unbelief. See, the difference wasn't that Smith Wigglesworth had more than I had. He had less than I had, less unbelief. I was still too receptive, too Uh, easily swayed by what other people thought and fear and embarrassment and pity for this guy you know pity will stop the power of God from operating there is a godly compassion but that's different than pity sometimes you have to be hard matter of fact that was one of the criticisms of Smith Wigglesworth they often said he's a hard man and Smith said that you know he was just against the devil he would hit people Punch him, kick him. One time he took a baby who had a head injury and kicked it off of the stage into the front row. Now that sounds hard, but you know what? The baby was healed. And Smith's answer when people said, "Why do you hit people and punch them and kick them and do things?" He says, "I'm out to get the devil. I can't help it if those people get into the way. Get in the way." He was hard. He was insensitive, unfeeling towards unbelief. Man, that is a powerful truth. So see, here's the, here's the application. When I prayed for that man and pulled him out of the wheelchair, I did have faith. And I was confused, basically, exactly like these disciples saying, God, what's wrong? I know I had faith. Was my faith not strong enough? No, my faith was strong enough. It's just that I had unbelief that counteracted my faith. If you could imagine right now two uh, thermometers, some of these like outdoor thermometers... And and the one on the right is your uh, a measurement of your faith level. The one on your left is a measurement of your unbelief level. Well, most people's their uh, their uh, imagination, the way that they picture faith working is, they just ignore that there is this unbelief over here. And what they do is, if their faith is up, you know, one inch or something on this scale over here and they pray and don't see what they've prayed for come to pass, well, then they think that they need to get it up to two inches, three inches. They need to increase their faith. And they just go on an all-out effort to, Oh, God, give me more faith. Give me more faith. What the Lord is saying here in Matthew chapter 17, He says, it's your unbelief that's the problem. If your faith is only the size of a mustard seed, in other words, if it barely registers on that thermometer, on that scale, That faith is enough to do anything if there is no unbelief over here on the left side where the unbelief scale is. See, instead of trying to shoot your faith through the roof and explode the thermometer, an easier way is to just pull the plug on your unbelief, drain your unbelief to zero, and then you'll find out that a little tiny mustard seed amount of faith is enough to accomplish anything that you need. I think it's far more common that people don't receive what God has already supplied for them because of unbelief than it is because of their lack of faith. Those are two opposite situations. Those are two different situations. It is true that if a person doesn't believe God, they won't receive. Faith is that bridge that brings things from the spiritual world over into the physical world. Faith does have to be present. But faith isn't that big of a deal. It's not that hard. We do have faith. We have the supernatural faith of God, but something that most Christians haven't dealt with is unbelief. And what is unbelief? Well, unbelief can just be fear. It could be worry. It could be care. Like, say, for instance, if the doctor tells you that you're going to die and then you start trying to believe God and you say, Father, I believe that by your stripes I've been healed and you confess the word and stuff, but in your mind you are sitting there worrying about everything else. See, this would go back to Mark chapter 11. If you say to this mountain, Be thou removed, be thou cast into the sea, and doubt not in your heart. In other words, you can't believe And be saying and doing some of the right things. And yet in your heart, be double-minded. Have a split heart. You have to be single-focused. How do you do that? You know, I've got a tape set that uh, deals with this exact passage of Scripture. It's entitled Hardness of Heart. And if anybody's missed that, I encourage you to please get hold of that tape set. That would answer a million questions for you. It's one of the greatest things I think that the Lord's ever shown me. But in Romans chapter 4, let me just illustrate this. It's talking about Abraham, and in verse 18, it says, "...who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb." Now this tells you how he was strong in faith. He didn't consider anything contrary. And here are some radical truths. Again, you've got to get this tape set on hardness of heart if you don't have it. I, I tell you, that is a powerful truth. And I haven't got time to fully develop this, but let me just say some things. You cannot be tempted with something that you don't think. So therefore, the first step in temptation, or you could say unbelief or failure, the first step in all of that begins with your thoughts. If your thoughts are only on God, then all you'll be tempted with is to believe God and trust God. But if you are listening to other things, if your thoughts are on things other than God, then you could be tempted with that. So Abraham, the way that he was strong in faith was he considered not his own body now dead, nor yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. This means that when God came to Abraham when he was 99 years old and told him that his wife Sarah would conceive and have a child in the next year, Abraham didn't even think about the fact that he was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. He didn't even consider that. Now, I believe he had that knowledge, but he didn't think on it. The word consider means to study ponder, deliberate, examine. That's what the word consider means. So he didn't study on it. He may have had that thought cross his mind. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Just because you have one thought contrary to your faith doesn't mean that you're in unbelief. I think it was Kenneth Hagin that says, you know, you can't keep the devil from from, uh, giving you a thought but you don't have to keep it. It's like birds. You can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest there. You can have a fleeting thought, and that doesn't mean you've got unbelief, but when you entertain it, when you study on it, deliberate, examine, ponder it, when you consider it, then you'll be tempted with that. And see, a lot of people just don't understand this. The way... Most people live their life today, if the Lord was to come to them at 99 years old and say, you're going to have a child in the next year, they would feel bound and obligated to go to a doctor and get this confirmed and say, is it possible? Have you ever heard of anybody who's 100 years old having a child? Examine my wife. She's already quit having you know, her periods. It's over with her. How could she have a child? And they would go to the doctors. They would have the doctors speak forth all this unbelief. No, it's never happened. No, it cannot happen. Then they'd go back and make sure, God, did you really say this? He'd say, yes, that's what I said. And then they would try and believe God after they've amassed and accumulated all of these thoughts that gender unbelief. And then they'd wonder, why is it so hard to receive from God? Abraham, the reason he was such a strong man of faith isn't because he had more than what we've got. He had less. He had less unbelief. This man was so disciplined that when he was 99 years old and told that he would have a child, he didn't even think about, consider, focus on, study his own body or the deadness of Sarah's womb. He only looked at the promise of God. So the way that unbelief comes is through your thought process. And most of us are so plugged into the world, into negative things, that it's a miracle that our faith has accomplished what it has because we've got so much unbelief that we're dragging around with us. We've got to recognize it doesn't take a huge faith. It just takes a pure faith. It takes a simple faith, a childlike faith that isn't countered with all of this other stuff. And the problem is most of us have been baptized in unbelief. Man, we listen to the junk that's on the television, the radio, the movies. We read all of the reports. We get all of this bad news. And then God tells us he's going to do something contrary to what the rest of the world is experiencing. And, you know, it's just hard for some people to only believe. They believe that God wants to bless them. They are asking for it. They're headed that direction, but then they've got all of this other knowledge. You know, this man Smith Wigglesworth that I was talking about praying for the woman who had the tumor. There's a report that Lester Summerall went to visit Smith Wigglesworth one time and knocked on his door, and he had a paper rolled up under his arm, and he introduced himself as Lester Summerall, and then he says, could I come in and visit with you? And And uh, Smith Wigglesworth says, well, you can come in, but the paper has to stay outside. And you know what? That was the way that Smith lived his life. He never read a newspaper. Now, I will grant you this, that when he first got turned on to the Lord, he couldn't even read. And he had to ask the Lord to help him to read. And he could read the Bible, but he really couldn't read other things very well. I mean, it was nearly like it was supernatural revelation when he read. So there's multiple reasons, but whatever uh, Smith Wigglesworth never read the newspaper. Now, I'm not saying that reading the newspaper is sin. I read the newspaper on occasion, maybe once a month or once every two or three months. And I listen I, I listen to news on the television maybe once a month. I listen to the news in the car and get that little two and three minute summary. And that's basically the news that I get. Um, so I'm not saying that reading a paper Listening to a telecast or something is sin. But I am saying that there's a lot of unbelief, a lot of negative statements in there. And Smith Wigglesworth probably missed some good things in the paper. Over a 35-year period of time, he might have missed a dozen or two dozen good things that he could use. I've used things from newspapers to make points in my messages. But I can guarantee you this, too. Smith Wigglesworth also missed hundreds of thousands of negative thoughts and statements that could have produced unbelief in him. And because of this, because he lived such a separated life, he just simply wasn't as susceptible to unbelief as what I was when I tried to pull that man out of the chair. God has now taught me this, and I've started living a life of separation, and I don't listen to things and watch things and do things and because of it some people would say my faith is stronger actually what it is my faith is purer. it just doesn't have as much hindrance i don't have as many thoughts of unbelief as i used to because i've quit uh, opening myself up to things that give me that opportunity for unbelief so this is what jesus was saying to his disciples he says it's your unbelief that's the problem if you had faith as only a grain of mustard seed It would be sufficient. You could have seen this happen if you would have only believed. Now, we don't know all of the reasons why the disciples had unbelief in this instance. But again, if you read this same story reported by the gospel writer Mark over in Mark chapter 9, in that instance, it says that when they brought the boy to Jesus, that he had a seizure and he fell down and foamed at the mouth. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who's had an epileptic seizure. But I have, and I guarantee you, it'll make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. And when that happens, it's going to gender unbelief, fear, worry. It's going to look contrary to what you're praying for. And unless you have spent time specifically fighting against that type of unbelief, then you're going to succumb to it. That's what happened to me, see, when I pulled this man out of the wheelchair and didn't see the right results. I was worried about what people thought. I had put too much emphasis on that. And because of it, I let the fear, the unbelief of other people and the fear of rejection from other people influence me. And it hindered my faith. Faith was present. And if I would have stood the way that Smith Wigglesworth stood, then my faith would have worked the way his worked. But the difference wasn't that I didn't have faith. It was the fact that I had unbelief. I had more than what Smith Wigglesworth had, more unbelief. Let me just say that there. this is my own uh, statement for the purpose of try, trying to clarify. I can't show you a chapter and verse on this, but I believe that there's three types of unbelief. One type of unbelief is just based on ignorance. Ignorance will cause unbelief. In other words, people don't know. Like like if you took a person who is raised in a denominational church and has never read the Bible and has been around people and their idea of Christianity is that you're just long faced and you're saved and you're waiting on heaven and that there is zero victory in this life. If they've been told that God doesn't heal today, that those things passed away with the apostles and stuff, well, you know what? It's ignorance is going to cause that person to not have faith and unbelief will come they will actually have a faith in reverse they will believe no i don't believe that those things happen that does not happen today well that's unbelief but it comes because they're just ignorant of the truth that type of unbelief is relatively easy to deal with you just tell a person the truth and if their heart is open to god well when they hear the truth they now receive it and ignorance uh, unbelief that comes from ignorance is gone and they're able to believe God. The second type of unbelief is what I call disbelief. And it's where you aren't ignorant, but you've been taught the wrong thing, such as that example I was just using. If you go beyond just saying, well, I've never heard of a person being healed. See, that's ignorance. But when you get into a place of saying, no, these things passed away with the apostles and God does not do miracles today. That's not ignorance, that is wrong teaching. It is disbelief. And that person will be believing that those things don't happen. Now that's harder to overcome than ignorance. Because a person who's ignorant, you just tell them the truth and if they don't have any prejudice or any teachings against it, they'll receive it. But a person who has been taught the wrong way is in a very real sense prejudiced against the truth and it's harder for them to renew their mind. That's where I was. And man, I've had to struggle against a lot of the things that I was taught against and excuses why God doesn't do miracles today and why things don't happen. So that's a little harder to overcome. But again, the antidote for that is the truth. If a person is committed to the word of God, you can renew your mind. The third type of unbelief is what I call a natural unbelief. And what I mean by that is it's not ignorance And it's not disbelief where you're believing the wrong thing, but it's just natural. Like, for instance, with this demon-possessed boy, as he was brought to Jesus, he had a seizure, as recorded in Mark chapter 9, and he foamed at the mouth. Now, when something like that happens, your mind, your emotions, your eyes, your ears are going to just tell you that it didn't work, that the demon didn't come out. Look at this. It didn't work. And that's not necessarily evil. It's just natural. You know what? You go through this life taking the input that you get from your eyes and from your ears and from your feelings. And you take that input and you have to make decisions based on that. It's not wrong. It's not evil. But you know what? There are things that you cannot perceive with your five senses. And you have to be able to go beyond that. And to get beyond that type of unbelief that just comes from natural things. Like if you pray for a person and instead of looking well, they fall over dead. Do you know what? There is going to be some natural unbelief come at you. You prayed for them to be well. Instead, they're now dead. What's going to happen? Well, unless you are really strong and do what the Lord said next year, you are going to just naturally have a fear and an unbelief come up and say, well, it didn't work. Why? Because I can't see it. Most of us are dominated by our physical senses. And it's this type of unbelief, the type of what I call a natural unbelief, that I believe was the apostles' problem here. They believed that you could cast out demons. They had done it before, and the very fact that they asked this question about why couldn't we cast him out showed that they did have faith. They were believing. But when they saw a manifestation, when this boy began to have a seizure, they just were more moved by what they saw than they were by what they believed. How do you overcome that type of unbelief? Remember the first two types, it's you got to share the truth with them. And when the people know the truth and renew their mind, you can get over ignorance and disbelief. But how do you get over just a natural unbelief? How do you get beyond what you feel? How do you get to where when you pray for a healing and your body still hurts? You're able to believe only and not let that pain that you feel in your body convince you that no, it didn't work. How do you do that? Well, Jesus gave the answer in the next verse. He says, Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Many people have thought that he was talking about this kind of demon, and from this they have made. Um, doctrines that some demons are stronger than others and some demons you have to fast and pray to get out, etc. That is not what he's talking about. There is no demon ever created and you will never encounter a demon or the devil himself that won't cower and flee at the name of Jesus and faith in his name. And your fasting and prayer doesn't do anything to it. If the name of Jesus and faith in his name won't defeat the devil, neither will your fasting and prayer. This is not saying that certain demons are so strong that you have to fast and pray to get them out. But you know what he's talking about? The subject in the previous verse was unbelief. And this is still the same sentence. It's not a new sentence. He's talking about this type of unbelief. What I'm calling a natural type of unbelief can only come out by much prayer and fasting. Now, see, that totally changes this. Faith is enough. You don't have to have big faith. Just a tiny faith is enough to see the dead raised. I know because I've seen the dead raised uh, 20-something years ago. I've seen three people raised from the dead, and the first one was 20-something years ago, and I didn't have huge faith. I just had a simple faith. Actually, it was kind of a setup. The very first person that I saw raised from the dead was a man that I had been praying for for months, and he had been totally paralyzed, unable to move, I'd gotten him to where he could move. He could get around. He could move his legs. He was beginning to do things. And I'd just been going by and every day praying for him and ministering to him. And I was getting ready to start a service. I had my guitar on. I was standing up in front of the church. And this man's son came and waved me over to him. And I walked over and he just put me and the guitar and everything in his car and drove me over to his father's house. There was only 144 people in this town of Pritchett, Colorado. So it didn't take me just a second to get over there. And I just thought that we were going over there to pray for his father, that maybe he had had an attack, there was some pain. I walked in, the sheriff was there trying to get his oxygen mask out. And the man's wife was there just crying and praying, Oh God, bring Everett back from the dead. And when she said that is the first time that I realized that the man was dead. And I already had a lot of effort in invested in this man and in his healing and so when i heard that he was dead the first thought that came to me was no way and i just walked over and i said ever in the name of jesus come back into that body and boom he just sat up and he was healed went to the doctor they checked him out anyway it's a long story but my point is that you know what if somebody would have told me two days prior that you were going to have somebody die and you need to raise them from the dead well, that would have given my mind enough time to start thinking and having this natural unbelief come at me, and, and it's very possible that I wouldn't have seen him raised from the dead. But the way it was, it was a setup. God just brought me over there in my ignorance. I prayed, and I didn't have time to disbelieve God. And so that's the reason that it works. See, just a tiny bit of faith is sufficient if you don't have anything to counterbalance it. And that's exactly the point that I'm trying to get across. But when when you do pray for something and something happens that looks contrary, well, then this natural unbelief, just your senses, you've been trained to go by what you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. How do you overcome that type of unbelief? Well, Jesus here is saying that it only happens through prayer and fasting. So what does prayer and fasting have to do with casting out this natural type of unbelief? Well, here's the here's what's going on. Here's an understanding of why this works. When you have an unbelief that just comes from what you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel, that's not necessarily evil. You've got to uh, take into account what your senses are telling you. You've got to operate in that. You know, I try. I flew with a man one time who tried to fly a plane by faith, and I was stupid enough to go with him. But anyway, he didn't have the skill that it took. And this guy curled up into a fetal position flying this little tiny plane and says, my God, we're going to die. We're going to die. Just the two of us in this plane. And while he freaked out over there, I had to fly a plane. I've never flown a plane. I didn't know what was going on. And it was in a terrible storm on top of all that. And I had to fly that thing for about an hour until he pulled himself together. And finally we land, got out of there. You know what? I don't want to go with somebody who's trying to fly a plane by faith. You need to have some knowledge, and you need to follow those instruments and do what you see and what you hear, and you need to be able to respond to that. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know what? There will be times in each one of our lives where responding to what you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel is not going to get it done. You've got to go beyond that. You've got to be able to move beyond your senses into the spirit realm. How do you do that? Well, fasting and prayer is how you do it. And here's the logic. See, if, if, say for instance, your body is hurting and you've got pain in it and yet you've believed God that by his stripes you were already healed, you've spoken to your pain, you've spoken to your body, you've spoken to God and praised him, you're acting in faith, you're doing all of these things and yet your body hurts. Well, under normal circumstances, you've been trained to respond to your body. And so if your body hurts, and that's contrary to what you prayed for, you have trained yourself to respond to that pain and say, well, it didn't work. You're still hurting. You aren't healed. How do you overcome that? Well, you have to retrain your body. And one of the ways you do it is through like fasting. If your body has been dominating and controlling you, what you begin to do is you just go on a fast. And you tell your body that body... You know what? It's not that you're totally wrong. It's not that you're bad or anything. You've been responding to what you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel, and under most circumstances, okay. But you need to learn that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You've got to learn that the spirit is more important than the physical and that there are realities that you can't perceive with this little peanut brain. And so to help teach you this, We are going to go on a fast. We aren't going to eat or drink, and we are going to recognize that God is my source, and God is going to give me supernatural strength. Instead of food supplying things and going by appetite, I am going to let the Word of God give me strength. And your body, if you have not trained it, it will rebel at that. Boy, your appetite will just go wild. You know, I've talked to a number of people who think that when they fast that they are going to die by noon the first day, that they they just feel weak all over, etc. Did you know it's a medical fact that fasting one day a week is actually a good thing for you? It will not hurt you. It'll purge you of toxins and different things, and it's good for you. And you don't physically, now some of you, this will be hard for you to believe, but I've read this in books. One is entitled uh, God's Chosen fast is one of the ones I got a lot of my information from 30-something years ago. But according to that, you don't physically begin to die until about 40 days into a fast. Prior to that time, it's mostly hunger. It's just hunger. But it's not a physical necessity. Many of us could live off the fat of the land for quite a while. So my point is that when you go on a fast... Your body will feel like, oh, I'm going to die by noon. I'll never make it through the day. And you know what? Your body will begin to start trying to control you and make you go against what you feel God told you to do. Your body will begin to start trying to exert you. This sense knowledge, your, your sense of what you see, hear and smell, feel will begin to try and dominate you and you'll have a choice. Are you going to let the physical realm rule, or are you going to rule the physical? And if you choose to continue on your fast, you'll have to, in effect, tell your body, body, you get in line. You're going to learn that you won't starve by noon the first day. You are going to be retrained that you can do things that God tells you to do, and that God's Word can supply your need. And your body will rebel and say, no, I'll die, and say, all right, well, we'll make it a two-day fast. And your body will say, two days. I'll die for sure. And you say, all right, three days. And you know, pretty soon your body will figure out that if I'm going to survive this, I better shut up. I, I'm going to have to... I, I mean, every time I complain, he he adds another day to the fast. And so your body will yield. And you know what? Over a period of time, I've experienced this, that after you go through that initial hunger pain, you actually reach a place where you aren't hungry at all. It doesn't bother you. And if you go on a... Uh, prolonged fast i think the longest fast i've been on has been 10 days could have been 11 somewhere around there and if and i mean that's without food of any kind no liquids except just water and if you go on a protracted fast like that did you know that eventually you'll get to a place where it seems like you don't ever have to eat again you can bring your body into subjection where god is literally ministering to you in a supernatural way And when that happens, then when you get off the fast, your body has learned something. Your mind has learned something. And when you say, you know, by his stripes I'm healed, and your body still detects pain, all you've got to do is say, you know what, there are things beyond what you can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. And your body will say, okay, and it'll submit. But if you haven't ever fasted, if you haven't ever disciplined your body, You're going to pray and say, by his stripes, I'm healed. And then your body's going to say, oh, you're still hurting. You aren't healed. And you'll say, no body, I am healed. And your body will say, wait a minute. Who are you to tell me anything? I tell you when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat. You hadn't given me an instruction in years. You are completely dominated by your senses. Don't tell me what to do. And you know what? Your body will rebel and you will submit to the natural unbelief that comes through those senses. But if you spend time praying and fasting, you know what it'll do? It'll break that natural dominance. See, prayer does the same thing. I believe that they're both the same principle. When you pray, you are talking to someone that you can't see. And you know what? Your mind, your physical sense knowledge will just go bonkers like, this is stupid. What am I doing? But if you continue in it, and if you make it a practice, you'll start seeing miracles. You'll have so many things happen. There will be so much evidence that your time in prayer was valid, and it did work, and that there is a real God whom you cannot see, that it'll help retrain your senses, that there's more than what you can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. And then... When you want your senses, to, you want your body to act like it's well when it doesn't feel well, well, your body will go ahead and respond because it knows that there's more to it than what you can just perceive with your senses. But a person who doesn't spend time in prayer and doesn't spend time in fasting, when they start trying to command their body and they start trying to go against what they see with their physical eyes, they're going to be useless because they've never disciplined it. Your body's not evil. It's just natural. And it has to be trained. Matter of fact, the scripture even talks about over in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, it says, Strong meat belongs to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. It says there that you have to exercise your senses. You have to train yourself. Did you know you have to train yourself to even submit to your physical senses? Most people don't recognize that, but there was a training. And some people learn. Some, I know that when I got into the Army, that on Bunker Guard in Vietnam, I began to start uh, hearing things. My hearing be- uh, became much more acute because it was a life and death situation. My smell became much more acute. You could smell the Vietnam usually before you could see them. And you could train yourself in those things. So anyway, the point that I'm making is whether you recognize it or not, there was training on your part, and you can increase your training in just the physical realm. Well, your senses can also be educated in spiritual things so that they discern spiritual and and spiritual truth. They don't have to stay carnal. You are not evil as such. You are just natural, and you have to train and educate your senses, and that's what fasting and prayer does. Fasting and prayer will get you to a place where you spent so much time in the presence of God. You are so responsive to the Word of God that the Word of God is like a sixth sense to you. And maybe you can't see, hear, smell, taste, feel what God said, but you know what? you got faith based on the word of God and your your mind will just accept that as a sixth sense and say, Well, it's not discernible by these other senses, but yes, this faith, I recognize it. That's the way it is. You can train yourself that way. See, to a very real way, that's what Smith Wigglesworth did. Smith Wigglesworth by neglect hardened himself towards unbelief, towards what people thought, and he spent so much time in prayer and fasting seeking God that he was sensitive to God and hardened to other things. So he prayed for a person, didn't see manifestation the first time he prayed, but he just kept at it until he saw a manifestation. In contrast, when I prayed for that man in the wheelchair, I had faith, but I also had unbelief that hindered, counterbalanced my faith, and I gave in to the unbelief, and so therefore I didn't see the desired results. Since the Lord has shown me these things, I now stick with things. I mean, if I pray and don't see a physical manifestation, I just make it happen. And some of you may say, well, how could you make it happen? Well, that is another teaching. But the foundation of it is in this teaching that I've had in this series. And that is you have to know that God has already done his part. You know that God has already released his power, that you aren't asking and pleading with God to do something If you pray for something and don't see the desired results, it's not God who didn't give. It's either you who hasn't received or it's Satan who is hindering. And so you just stand there and you take authority. You speak to your mountain. You command things to happen. There's things that you can do uh, when you're ministering to other people. There's things that you can do that will quicken their faith. And there's lots of times, like say for instance, if I'm praying for a person. And I just discern that there is this unbelief. It may not be evil. It may not be a disbelief, but it's just unbelief. It maybe natural things. This person is just dominated by what they feel. And I know that they're having a hard time receiving the healing from God. Well, what I'll do then is just push over into a gift of the Spirit, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. And I'll talk to them about something that's emotional. Maybe about how they've been hurt, about there was depression, grief. Tragedy struck. And I'll use this word of knowledge and I'll speak to them on something that's totally disjointed, uh, unrelated to their physical healing. And I'll get them to start receiving. They'll say, Man, there's no way that anybody could have known this. This is God speaking through this man. This is God. And they open up. Faith starts flowing. And all of a sudden, man, their faith is quickened. They are moving and they're saying, Yes, this is God. Father, I receive. And while they're open and their faith is flowing, Then I'll come back and I'll speak to that back or speak to whatever that didn't see it manifest before and all of a sudden, boom, they'll be healed. I mean, I've increased the number of people who get healed by two or three times or more by doing things like this. And it's this principle that I've been talking about. God has already done everything. It's not a matter of us asking God to heal. God has already done. It's a matter of us receiving. Now, that's the basic principle But then there's laws that govern how it works. You have to speak. I speak to the parts of bodies. I speak to things and command them to respond. I take authority over the devil. And sometimes I do things to quicken that person's faith, like I was talking about in these gifts of the Spirit. And I do all of these things not to manipulate God, but to get people into a position to receive, to quicken their faith. And since I've understood this, I still don't see 100% manifestation. That's what I'm believing for. And I'm moving that direction, and I'm seeing better results than I've ever seen. But you know what? I still don't understand all of it, but I believe that these truths are foundational. Let me also be quick to add to this, that there are some very good friends of mine who have some crisis situations in their family, people that are sick and things, and I have prayed with them. I have used everything I've taught on this tape set believed with them, and still haven't seen manifestation. There was a friend of mine who died this last year who I prayed with and ministered to. And as far as I could tell, they had faith, and I didn't discern any unbelief. But of course, you don't know exactly what's on the inside of people, but they died. There are still questions that I have, and I'm sure that as I go on, I'm going to learn more. But I am absolutely convinced that what I have taught is accurate. It may not be all that there is to it. There may be other steps, but I believe that these are foundational things that if you could get this concept, if you could understand that God has already done his part, his transmitter is working perfectly 24 hours a day. He's constantly giving us everything that we need. It's a done deal. And it's not a matter of his transmitter that's the problem. It's our receiver. We need to learn to receive. We need to become steadfast and believe this. Understand the spiritual realm and how to bring things from the spirit into the physical. We need to quit giving the devil extra power and glorifying him, and we need to recognize he's been defeated. We need to go to the parade and see that he's been defeated and beat. We need to accept that we have the faith of God, the supernatural faith of God, and it's not a lack of faith that's the problem. It's the fact that we have unbelief. It's not that we have less than the people in the past that have been successful and have seen great things happen. We've got more. We've got more unbelief. They had just a simple childlike faith. A mustard seed amount of faith is enough to see anything done if there's no unbelief to counteract it. And if you find yourself with a natural unbelief where you really do believe the things of God and you believe it to the point that you're acting on it, you're expecting and yet you aren't seeing the right results, Well, then nine out of ten times, it's going to be just the fact that there is some natural unbelief. You haven't got your senses exercised to where they are operating in the good. Instead, they're operating in the evil. They're just being dominated by what they can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. And you can change that through prayer and fasting. Now, there's more to it than that. Sometimes other people are involved. It can be the attitude The unbelief of people round about you, the sixth chapter of the book of Mark, shows that Jesus, who was operating in faith perfectly, was still hindered because of other people's unbelief. In the eighth chapter of Mark, you find Jesus taking a blind man by the hand and leading him out of the town to pray for him because of the unbelief of those people. And that affected the way he received. And because of it, Jesus asked the man, What do you see? And he prayed for him a second time. So there's a lot of things involved, but I believe that the things that we've shared on this tape set are foundational, and I can promise you that this will change your life. If you've listened to this, and if it hasn't made a radical difference in the way you believe, then I would suspect that either you were believing properly or you didn't get the message that was on this tape set. I really believe it's that powerful. I really do. And so I encourage you that if you aren't seeing the right results, if your life is ineffectual, if you aren't seeing the the uh, abundant life that God promised you manifest in your life, and if this teaching didn't change the way you believe, then you need to listen to it again. Because I promise you that the things that you need are here on this tape set to give you at least a foundation and push you in that direction. So I just praise God. I believe that this is going to make a big difference in your life. And I encourage you to just persist in it. Go on and, and get stronger and stronger in the grace of the Lord Jesus.